Please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come and we ask that you would, by your Spirit, open your word to us. We would be shaped and changed by you and for your glory. And the glory of your Son, Jesus, our Savior, the one who holds the keys to death and Hades. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. It is um, a joy to be here with you. Again, my name is um, Bishop Ken, and it's just been a joy to see how Jesus has been working in you and working through you. I, I want to say that um, you might feel like in St. Louis, you might be an outlier, sort of on the edge of the Diocese of the Rocky Mountains, but I want you to know you're actually more at the center than you realize um, through actually your clergy. So Ben heads up, he chairs our theology group that does significant work for our diocese. And then Sarah is um, the, the president, the head of our College of Deacons, which is a significant work in our diocese. So you are more at the center of things than you recognize. We're going to be looking at John chapter 20, so you can open your Bibles to there. And there's so much in there, there's no way I'm going to cover everything that's in there, so don't worry, this won't be a three-hour sermon. But there are some things I want us to pay attention to and to see. And, and the first is how Jesus treats the disciples. That he actually treats them with gentleness and with care. Sometimes seeing what is not there is as important as seeing what is there. So, for example, when Jesus comes and appears, he does not express disappointment in the disciples. He had reason to be disappointed, didn't he? And they fled. They abandoned him. Jesus does not come and say, listen, I poured into you guys for three years. I, I gave myself to you. And in my darkest hour, when I needed you the most, you abandoned me. I came to work on saving you, and you are only concerned about saving yourself. There is no disappointment expressed. How often do we live with this feeling that, that somehow God is disappointed in us? Or we live in this place where we're worried that if we mess things up, if we don't do things right, that God will be disappointed in us. The devil loves to bring up our failures, uh, to, to put them in our face, to taunt us, to accuse us, and say, look at what you've done. Look, God is so disappointed in you. But what you find here is actually, and this is, this is an outgrowth of the work of Jesus and the resurrection, the fullness of what he's done, that, that God is not disappointed in us. Now, we can grieve the Holy Spirit. Absolutely. There, there can be a sadness when we're not living into the life that Jesus has, um, has, has for us. But that is different than disappointment. Sadness and disappointment are different because disappointment is actually a form of shame. So if we are living out of this place where we are afraid that God will be disappointed in us, or if we are living in this place of, of just sort of feeling generally that God is already disappointed in us, that keeps us from living the life that Jesus has intended us to live. It keeps us tentative. It keeps us actually self-focused. It keeps us living in and defined by shame. It actually denies the radical work of the resurrection of Jesus, making us new creation, sons and daughters of the King of Kings. The other thing I want you to notice is that Jesus does not berate them for hiding behind locked doors. He doesn't berate them for not actually getting it, that death could not hold him. Jesus, when he shows up, his words aren't, 
What are you doing? Why are you hiding here? What, what are you worried about? Didn't I tell you again and again and again that I would suffer and die and on the third day I would rise again? Are you that dense? I mean, could I have made it any plainer? Right? He does not come and berate them for their lack of understanding. Now, now we do know that God and, and Jesus, they correct us. In one sense, that's what you see happening to Thomas later in this chapter. But there is a difference between correction and berating. Again, berating has something to do with shame, and, and correcting has the goal of building up. Berating has the goal of tearing down. Now, um, if we are those who have been rescued, but we are still defined by shame instead of being defined by the gospel, God's correction can feel like he is tearing us down. Right? It can, we can have that experience that that is true. And, and the reality is there are sometimes there are things that God does need to tear down in us. There are things that, that do need to be demolished. There are certainly in the process of God building us up things that he tears down in that process where we have maybe a wrong belief or wrong attitudes or wrong desires. But that is different than God actually tearing down who we are. God's correction can feel like it's tearing down who we are if we are defined by shame and if you're not defined by the gospel. If we don't understand that actually we already have God's love and care for us, that there is a delight he has in us as his children that cannot be taken away. If we don't understand that our standing before God doesn't depend on us being good enough and getting it right. It depends on Jesus and what he has done for us. If we don't understand that my worth and my identity is actually centered in what Jesus has done and who he has made me to be as a child of God, then God's correction can certainly feel like it's out to destroy us. But he actually is trying to build us up and tear down the things that actually get in the way of living what it means to be as a child of God. And if we are defined by shame instead of the gospel, we actually run and hide from correction. Because we are afraid that it's going to tear us down. Or sometimes we are defined by shame and we go in the opposite direction. We think that somehow holiness, being worthy of God, is just to say how awful I am all the time. Which also denies the radical nature of the resurrection. It denies what Jesus has done for us and who he has made us to be as children of the King of Kings. Jesus comes with gentleness. He comes with grace. He comes with care. And so the first words that he says to the disciples when he appears to them are, are simply these words. Peace be with you. Now in the Hebrew mind, peace is associated with blessings from God. And there is a, a fullness to that. There is a sense of God's presence, God's favor, God's blessing being with you is what peace is. So in one sense, what Jesus is saying is, listen, everything is okay. All is well. God's favor and God's blessing are for you. Now, we don't actually know what the disciples' initial reaction is. It could be shock. It could be disbelief. It could be trying to figure it out because the door's locked. Jesus is dead. Right? He, he makes his proclamation, but it's only after he shows them the wounds in his hand and his side that we see that, that the disciples actually have joy, that they're overwhelmed with joy. And peace and joy go together. 
They are the marks of salvation. So first, Jesus proclaims peace. Peace be with you. All is well. God's favor, God's blessing is for you. And then he shows them peace by showing his wounds in his hand and in his side. It is what we see in Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 5. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. That is a demonstration. He's showing them that, that actually the peace is there. And that's where we see the disciples and being overwhelmed, overcome with joy. Can you imagine that moment? Can you imagine the joy they would have felt in that moment? And in the midst of that joy, in the midst of that, that celebration that overwhelmed, Jesus says again to them in verse 21, peace be with you. They're not afraid. He hasn't come and berated them. He's not speaking disappointment in them. And yet he repeats again in the midst of their joy, peace be with you. But this peace is actually there because of what follows. Because he says, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. The Father sent Jesus. And what happened in the previous few days? He was beaten and crucified. It's like being sent in the same way doesn't necessarily seem very appealing, does it? So he is actually reorienting them. He is, he is actually helping them understand what it is to be sent. He speaks the Father's blessing before he gives the commission. Because the commission is actually part of the blessing. It is actually part of the Father's favor. Jesus is reorienting them to the honor of being sent. That we are given a place in the larger story. We have the, the story of creation, God's work in creating all that is out of nothing. Then we have the chapter that we wrote, right, of rebellion and fall. We are plunged into sin and death and come under the dominion of darkness. And because we were stewards of creation, all of creation fell with us. Then you've got the, the chapter of redemption. Jesus coming to save us, coming as one of us, living a perfect life, going to the cross for our sins, rising victoriously from the dead, ascending into heaven. And then there's the, the chapter of, of the new creation, of, of the, the restoration of all things. What is happening when we are being told that we are being sent just as the Father sent Jesus, he's saying, we actually have a part in that story. That we are continuing that work of what Jesus has done, his work of restoration. We are sent as he was sent. And that work of restoration is leaving, leading inevitably into the restoration of all things, into the new creation. Do you see the honor in being sent? You see the, the joy that we actually get to be a part of this work of redemption. This is Jesus speaking the Father's blessing because he wants them to understand that, that we are invited into this story. That we actually, there is a, an honor and a glory that we have in being people who are sent. This is why mission and discipleship are actually interrelated. You cannot separate them. Because if we know who we are in Jesus, if we know who he has rescued us to be, then we know the honor of the role we have been given. If we don't understand that, then we settle for smaller stories and we live our lives consumed, chasing the things that were actually given to us to enjoy, but were never meant to be the goal of life. 
Never meant to be the fullness of life. Never meant to be the things that we try to find meaning for life in. Over 40 times in the Gospel of John, it speaks about Jesus being sent by the Father. And, and all of that is communicated in that actually begins to shape uh, and mark how we are sent just as Jesus sent the Father. The Father sent Jesus. We are called to carry out the work that Jesus was doing. We're not starting a new work, right? And it's not that there's something missing in his work. The work of Jesus in the redemption of things is full and complete on the cross. And we then are those who bear that good news, that continuing work. We bear witness to Jesus in the proclamation and the demonstration of the gospel. And in that, then we have this proclamation and this demonstration. We are those who are, who are to be the ones who bring peace. We bring God's blessing and his favor. We bring wholeness to him that comes through the work of Jesus on the cross and his resurrection applied into the lives of those we meet by the power of the Holy Spirit. But we need to understand this is not simply a task that we do. It actually is meant to be who we are. This is why we are called the body of Christ. Did you notice we're not called the worker bees of Christ? We are the body of Christ. It actually speaks to our identity. This is actually who we are. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't work. Yes, there is work that we engage in. But that work is meant to be a living out of who we are as the body of Christ. Who Jesus has rescued us to be. Those who have been reconciled to God through Jesus. And those then who are part of this work of reconciliation. That, that we have been called to be ambassadors of Christ. To be those who bring reconciliation. That is actually living into or pushing towards the reconciliation of all things. And all the times that it is spoken about Jesus being sent. What we see is that Jesus is completely dependent upon the Father. He is completely obedient to the Father, and we see that he is engaging in this work in the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus lived in a dependence upon the Father. He lived in a complete dependence upon the Father. He was not operating in his own strength. He wasn't carrying out his own ideas. He wasn't following his own desires. We see that on the night that he was handed over. Father, may this cup pass for me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And that place of dependence, it's closely tied to obedience because he would only do what he saw the Father doing, what what the Father was telling him to do. And dependence and obedience are related. Because what you depend on for life is what you will obey. So if, if you depend on life, if you think that life comes from your own abilities, if you think it comes from your own resources, if you think it comes from the affirmation of others, that is what you will obey. That is actually what will control the direction of your lives. This dependence and obedience are related. Now, Jesus, empowered by the Holy Spirit, he lived in a complete and perfect dependence upon God and obedience to God because he did not have sin. There was no selfishness and there was no self-protection that actually was marring how he walked in this world. We cannot do this perfectly. In fact, if we're honest, there are times we struggle to do it at all. This is why the message of peace be with you is so essential. You are going to mess it up. 
You are in seeking to be dependent on the Father and seeking to be obedient to Jesus. You are going to mess it up. And yet his favor and his blessing are still for you. Right? His favor and his blessing aren't contingent on us getting it right. It is not that, that his favor and his blessing are contingent on us doing it right. It's contingent on who we are as a beloved children of God. It actually is not based on what we do, but on what Jesus has done for us. In other words, this life of discipleship is more about heading in the right direction than getting every step right. And it's never too late to start. If we have been rescued by Jesus, then the life we are called into is about standing in the finished work of the cross. Standing more fully into who Jesus has rescued us to be as his glory and as his presence in creation. So we are called to a dependence upon Jesus. We are called into an obedience uh, to Jesus. But we walk that out of his love and grace having been poured into us. It is in response to his love and grace, not something we do in order to get his love or grace or to keep his love or grace. This is about becoming more fully who God has intended us to be, becoming more fully human. Now, Jesus, when he commissions, he doesn't just commission, he empowers. And I, I want to look briefly at verse 22. It says, with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. The language here is actually uh, bringing forth the language of the image that you find in Genesis 2-7 where God takes the dust of the earth, breathes into it, and therefore you then have a living being. What you find in verse 22 is the gift of faith in the resurrected Jesus, which then makes the new creations. And I say the gift of faith. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 make it really clear that faith is not something that we are responsible for creating or mustering. If you're dead in your sins, you can't do that. We hate the light. We can't bring ourselves to life. We are saved by grace through faith. And this, not from yourself, it is a gift from God. There is the gift of faith that actually brings us alive. So what you find in verse 22 is Jesus showing it how we are made alive, how we are made new creations by this the Spirit applying the work of the cross into our lives. This is why Paul can write in Romans 8, 9 that, that if you, you cannot say you believe and not have the Holy Spirit, you can't believe without the Holy Spirit. This is showing the gift of faith. This is showing Jesus forming the new creation community. And the disciples are made new. But I want you to be clear, you don't see them empowered at this point to be sent. Right? You find in verse 26, a week later, are they out there proclaiming the Lord? No, they're still behind locked doors. The next chapter, they go out fishing. Not for people, but for fish. And so they are commissioned for this work, but we don't see them empowered for this work until 50 days after the resurrection, until the day of Pentecost. Then you can't, you can't contain them. Then there is an empowering of the Holy Spirit to be sent. So people often talk about Pentecost is the birth of the church. Well, if that is true, then what happens on this day is where the church is conceived. Now, there is a lag between the commissioning and the empowering. And that lag of 50 days is there, and it's there for some intentional reasons. And that lag between them, at least part of it, is to teach them dependence. 
When you are waiting for something, which in this season with all the backlog of things, right, there are certainly things we wait for, you realize how powerless you are to make something happen. So there's that waiting is actually teaching them a dependence upon the Lord, that they are waiting for Him to move. I also think, though, that that part of what that leg is between the commissioning and the empowering is actually is trying to teach them that their identity and their worth comes from who they are, not from what they do. See, what we do is meant to rise out of who we are. We, as fallen humans, are so quick to assign value and worth based on what people accomplish for ourselves and for others. And this leads to a utilitarianism. And that utilitarianism destroys joy and delight. To know the Father's delight and joy in us before we do anything useful is essential. Because we understand that that actually his joy and delight aren't dependent on us doing the useful things. If we don't understand this, then being sent is not something we engage in as an honor. It either becomes a badge of how wonderful we are, or something we do to obtain God's favor, instead of rising out of the truth that we already have His favor. That we, we engage in this out of His grace and His love. When we get caught in utilitarianism, then people's usefulness to us is based on their utility. Why do marriages end? You're not useful to me anymore. I don't feel loved for you anymore. And it's not just that we do this in relationships. We actually do that with God. If we think He is utilitarian about us, that our value is based on how useful we are, then we tend to approach God as His value is actually how useful He is to us. You're not doing what I want. I'm done with you. That utilitarianism, it destroys faith. It destroys joy and delight. And beyond that, how can we step into the beauty of the life that God has for us and and engage in that work of reconciliation? And that work of reconciliation is actually drawing the beauty and the life out of others. How can we do that if we are stuck in a place of utilitarianism? What we are doing in confirmation this day which is an ordination of the people. It is the the apostolic laying on of hands for the empowering of the Spirit for the work of ministry. Because we are first and foremost a kingdom of priests. We are doing in confirmation actually is similar to what we do every week as we come to the table. Actually, it it is woven into the shape of our worship that it is meant to root us more fully into what Jesus has done for us. Not a requirement of what we have to do for him, but what he has done for us and the joy and the beauty of who he has made us to be. And that then begins to erase the voices that say that somehow God is disappointed in us, that God is berating us, the voices that tear us down. Because when we are torn down, when we feel that God is disappointed, when we are living out of a life of of utility, then we don't actually know the honor of being sent in the power of the Holy Spirit to be the part of His work of reconciliation in our world. There is a joy and there is a goodness in being the church. Because we are part of the work of reconciliation. That we have the honor and the privilege of seeing lives transformed by Jesus. Our lives and the lives of those that we meet. Let's pray.
Jesus, we thank you that you are the one who rose victoriously from the dead. We thank you that in your resurrection there is a fullness of work that has been applied into our lives. That you became sin, that we could become the righteousness of God. That you make us beloved children of God. That we then have the honor of being sent just as the Father sent you. That you have called us into this work of redemption, this work of restoration. Father, I ask that you would by your spirit erase the voices of, of that somehow you're disappointed in us, erase the places where we feel that we are berated by you. We want to be open to your correction. We want to know where we grieve the Spirit, absolutely, that we can walk more in fullness and faithfulness of life and joy. Father, that we would not be held back or tentative in our faith, but that we would be bold as those who are your presence and your witnesses in this creation, and for your glory. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen.